From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Helen Haynes, crossbench member for the Victorian seat of Indi, has been one of the strongest advocates of an integrity commission. In the last parliament, she released a private member's bill with a model for how one would operate. Now the government will soon unveil its own legislation for such a commission. Meanwhile, this week has been dominated by an issue of propriety of a different sort, with the revelations that Scott Morrison secretly had himself sworn into a number of portfolios, including finance and treasury. In most cases, he didn't tell the incumbent minister what he'd done. Helen Haynes joins us today to discuss the extraordinary Morrison behaviour, the Integrity Commission, and the impact of the now very large crossbench in the House of Representatives. Helen Haynes, what is your take on Scott Morrison's behaviour? How serious is this issue? Michelle, I think, uh, like many, many Australians, whether they're parliamentarians or not, um, astonished by this, uh, this, these revelations about uh, the former Prime Minister and uh, these multiple portfolio um, responsibilities that he secretly uh, took on. I'm alarmed by it. Uh, I have uh, so many questions yet unanswered. And and for me, I think uh, the secrecy element of this is really quite disturbing. Is this the sort of issue that should be referred to an integrity commission or does it fall into an entirely different category? Again, Michelle, there's still many questions that remain unanswered, and my understanding is that we will get a more fulsome uh, report uh, and a set of recommendations from the Solicitor General this coming Monday. Uh, but on the face of it, it it doesn't strike me as a clear pathway to uh, any uh, integrity commission as, as we believe the integrity commission or anti-corruption commission will be drafted. Uh, it's, it, it doesn't appear apparent to me that uh, there are questions here of uh, corruption, um, but we don't know really uh, what, uh, what uh, motivated the Prime Minister to keep all of this a secret. And indeed, if, uh, if it came to, to light uh, that there were some activities that occurred as a result of this uh, secret uh, joint portfolio, um, then, then possibly that could end, uh, end up in a, referable to, a referral to an anti-corruption commission. But on the face of it right now, I don't see that that's the pathway that it would head. There has been speculation of a possible parliamentary censure motion against Scott Morrison. On what you know at the moment, would you support such a motion? Again, Michelle, so much of this is uncertain. It's it's an unprecedented occurrence in our uh, in our Australian democracy. Uh, this happened in a previous parliament. Uh, so I wonder if, in fact, uh, a censure motion can even be drawn um, in a new parliament. Uh, again, I, I think well, we're in uncharted waters here, and uh, I, I don't know how to respond to that. 
Again, I think we need to wait for what the Solicitor General has to say about this. But what's clear is there is really no no legitimate excuse for the former Prime Minister to have kept all of this a secret from his Cabinet, from the Parliament and from the people. And that truly is the part that is disturbing to me. And and I think it, uh, it opens up some real questions around potential loopholes in our system. And that's the bit that's really worrying and that we really must um, must now consider. Mr Morrison's behaviour is really quite weird on this. I, I truly don't uh, feel in any way satisfied with the explanations he's provided thus far. Some people are suggesting on this question of secrecy that the convention of announcing the appointment of ministers to parliament should be formalised so that it's a requirement. Do you think that should be done? Well, up until now, um, no one really needed this to be formalised because it's such a straight-up convention and there would be no uh, no real reason why why anyone would wish to keep these, uh, these things secret. But if that's what it takes, then that's maybe what we need to do. I, again, I'm completely astonished um, by, by uh, this set of circumstances and I, and I absolutely uh, feel completely unsatisfied with the explanations that Mr Morrison has given thus far. Have the crossbenchers had any uh, discussions, informal discussions between themselves on this issue and how it should go forward? Well, Michelle, I can only speak for myself on this and I've had no discussion with uh, any other member of the crossbench uh, on this issue. I I note that um, uh, various independent members have had um, various things to say in the media, but as a collective, we've had no, uh, this hasn't been an agenda item on on a collective meeting. No, not at all. Now, let's turn to the Integrity Commission. You were one of the pace setters on this in the last parliament with your draft Bill, is the government reaching out to you in relation to the drafting of its bill? Michelle, the um, Attorney General, Mr Dreyfus, has uh, been conducting a series of uh, roundtables. I've participated in two of those. He's had roundtables with uh, members of the crossbench, both uh, House of Representatives and the Senate. Uh, I understand he's had roundtables with the the group of retired judges uh, and with other civil society organisations. I've had several... um, private meetings with the Attorney-General as well to discuss uh, his proposed legislation to establish the National Anti-Corruption Commission. So, yes, uh, the Attorney-General has reached out um, in good faith and um, quite substantively. Obviously, the debate is going to be about the scope and the safeguards of this body. Do you think that there are dangers of it being used politically? Michelle, um, When I consider what I know thus far, and of course I haven't seen the draft legislation yet and I won't see it until Mr Dreyfus uh, introduces it to Parliament, uh, the fundamental principles that that I was seeking in the previous Parliament when I was criticising the previous government's bill uh, are largely, as I understand it, largely going to be present in the National Anti-Corruption Commission. Um, There will be a broad uh, definition of corruption Um, There will be uh, the capacity for the integrity, well, for the Anti-Corruption Commission uh, to conduct 
public hearings for both MPs and for uh, other other people, departmental heads and the likes. There will be um, transparent reporting and accountability. Those things are all there, which is good, um, as I understand it. Uh, and there will be capacity to undertake uh, retrospective investigations. Those are all important principles to make sure that we have a robust in, uh, anti-corruption commission that's fit for purpose. In terms of safeguards, um, my concerns remain at the moment about uh, the detail of whistleblower protection. The Attorney General has been on the public record um, indicating that he will be doing a considerable amount of work on the Public Interest Disclosure Act uh, to uh, tighten up whistleblower protections through that piece of legislation. Um, and, uh, well, we, we, we need to see what the connection between this National Anti-Corruption Commission and the PID will be. At the moment, I, I remained a little bit concerned, actually quite concerned, uh, about whistleblower protection. Uh, I remain concerned. Um, I'm seeking clarity around uh, how this body um, will be funded and the independence of advice around the budget for this body uh, so that that is not politicised and that it can't be um, dismantled by stealth or by being um, starved of funds. And uh, I remain um, concerned about uh, how this body will will interact with Parliament and I, and I believe that there will be a joint statutory committee set up to... Um, to oversee this commission, but uh, the details of that committee and the balance of uh, non-government members, I think, uh, may need some work. So there's some areas that I, I have questions about still. Um, whether it will be used uh, in a way that uh, is just uh, frivolous, um, I think that uh, well, of course, there's there's opportunities for members of parliament, for members of the public, for anyone to make a referral into this new anti-corruption commission. But the appointment of an independent commissioner uh, with all the capacities and resources that she or he needs is there to make sure um, that frivolous or vexatious claims are, are, are not pursued. There is, however, even leaving aside frivolous claims, this whole grey area, isn't there, of, of corruption, which uh, we've seen in terms of appointments and even one could say the sports rorts scheme, that's sort of falling into a, a, a no man's land almost, isn't it? You, you've said that the Morrison matter on what you know wouldn't go before such a, a body. Uh, we know that straight out bribes and things of that sort would. But when you get into this grey area, jobs for the boys, politically slanted uh, allocation of grants, is that properly within the remit of this body or not? In my view, Michelle, we need to have the capacity for this body to investigate uh, such grey matters as you describe them because we need to understand the source and the systemic nature of uh, possible corruption. And, and that's where I see uh, things such as jobs for the boys, uh, appointments being made, funded by, um, by, public, by the public funds uh, that are in fact politically motivated um, is, is potentially corrupt. 
likewise, um, public money being spent for political gain through so-called rorting or pork barrelling uh, is potentially corruption. So um, I would like to see... Um, I would like to see this body capable of being able to investigate such matters. Now, they may find uh, that, in fact, this is not corrupt, but it's indeed um, uh, uh, not desirable. Um, We need to investigate these things. There's no doubt in my mind that this body needs to be able to take a look at this. Now, one of the elements um, uh, that was key to the proposal I put to the parliament was pro-integrity measures, was a body that could initiate investigations on its own right to look into matters that uh, affect good governance and pork barrelling is such a matter. So uh, I would like to see uh, Mr Dreyfus's model um, have the capacity to investigate areas of so-called grey corruption. There are very fine lines, though, aren't there? I think most people would think that the Barillaro appointment was beyond the pale, and yet governments make appointments all the time of ex-politicians, and in many cases they seem totally appropriate. So is it desirable for such a body as an Integrity Commission or Anti-Corruption Commission to be making those judgments? Well, again, these bodies are seeking to stamp out corruption and they are seeking to shine a light in dark places. Uh, Now, in shining that light, they may well determine that there's nothing to be seen. But on the other hand, they may well find that there are practices which have been accepted as as kind of uh, matey and okay that are in fact not okay, that in fact lead to poor governance, uh, that lead to poor public policy, that lead to an erosion of trust uh, in our leaders. Now, that may not ever end up in anything that's uh, that's close to being criminal, but it ends up in a place where a report can be made to the public, uh, a report can be made to the parliament that's, that uh, strongly recommends that practices such as these are safeguarded against and that we need to change our mechanisms for appointments um, to statutory boards or to particular jobs. Uh, So, you know, I think that we need to have an anti-corruption commission that has the capacity to make us better. Uh, So in my mind, um, I want to see it resourced sufficiently and with a skill set that can enable such, such investigations. One of the interesting things in recent years is that voters in previously safe seats are now supporting independents like yourself and your predecessor, Cathy McGowan, so that these seats become more contested and therefore are given more attention by a government and by a prospective government. And that attention obviously includes uh, getting some government largesse for what's needed in the seat. How does this fit in to this whole notion of not having politically biased grants? Yeah, Michelle, I I, I struggle with um, I struggle with this uh, of this idea that in seeking better representation in uh, challenging uh, a, a dominant two major party. Uh, worldview of politics that it's uh, that it results in getting more stuff. 
Um, I think, but it does, doesn't it? Well, I think what I mean, we saw that in the we saw that in the Gillard government, for example, uh, with New England, it was pretty obvious. Yes, we did, and and I don't abide by it. Uh, what uh, what we see uh, is is largesse being sprinkled around what's you know considered marginal seats all over the nation. We've only got to look down to Tasmania in the seat of Bass, for example. Um, what what we've learned here in Indi is that what people seek is is good representation. What they seek is their voices being heard in the parliament, is that the values that they hold being um, applied to the decision-making around how, how their, uh, their parliamentarian votes on particular pieces of legislation. And, yes, uh, people have been concerned in what were considered safe blue-ribbon seats, whether they be Labor or, or Liberal or National, is that they're being ignored uh, and that they're taken for granted and that, yes, in some ways that may mean that they feel they don't get funding for something that legitimately uh, they need. Um, but mostly they are, are, are disenfranchised by, by their values not being represented in the parliament. And I think we saw that so, so clearly uh, this election with uh, some of those seats, uh, for example, in, in Wentworth, North Sydney, in Goldstein, in Kuyong, where it wasn't around um, being ignored for largesse. It was around being ignored for their strong uh, views that uh, around um, scientifically based action on climate change or indeed uh, real action on uh on an integrity commission. So, you know, I've, I've been a champion for transparency and for clear guidelines that are applied um, to funding from the day I got to Parliament. There needs to be a pathway that communities can see is fair and just, that uh, if you need a hospital in your uh, electorate, as indeed I do, uh, if you need new roads or a bridge or, or whatever it might be, that there's a clear pathway uh, to applying for those funds, putting forward a case and a legitimate uh, system that shows where you are in the queue to achieving the infrastructure that you need in your community. Let's just finish off by talking about what's now a very crowded crossbench in the lower house. But despite the expanded numbers, the crossbenchers there do not have the uh, ability to determine the outcome of votes because we've got a majority government. It's early days, but how's the crossbenchers influence and behaviour changed from the last term? So, uh, look, Michelle, there is, you know, of course, the, the obvious that we are a very big crossbench now. Um, we're occupying a rather, uh, a rather large wedge in that seating plan in the House of Representatives. And that's a very clear message uh, to both the government and to the opposition uh, that there is a third force to be considered in, um, in our public policy. I think we saw this play out very well uh, in the debate on, on the Climate Act. Uh, we saw a, a minister who took meetings with individual members of the crossbench who put forward uh, various sets of amendments. In my own case, I put forward four amendments that would position rural and regional Australia uh, in a, an important place in that Climate Act that would ensure that the voices of, of regional Australians uh, were considered in the skill set uh, for the Climate Change Authority and that economic benefit uh, would flow to rural and regional Australia as a result of reducing our emissions. I had a very, uh, a very considered and a very collaborative 
conversation with the minister. And indeed, we saw when that those amendments were put to a vote that the government and the crossbench supported those, and uh, and that was a win. It was a win for for my electorate and for rural and regional Australia. But likewise, we saw many members of the crossbench coming forward with good faith amendments that were also successful. So. Uh, it's true that uh, this crossbench is not holding the balance of power in terms of numbers in the House, uh, but we've seen early days, of course, but we've seen uh, the capacity of members of the crossbench to go to a minister uh, to put forward a case and for that to be successful in influencing how a bill turns out. And to what extent are they working together? Um, well, the crossbench uh, is is the sum of, of many individuals now and um, some uh, very different electorates. Uh, when it comes to working out who's who's got a speaking spot, whose turn it is at question time, who indeed may be a representative on this uh, new uh, on this jobs and skills forum that's coming up, the crossbench meet together and discuss these issues and work out who's going to do what in in a very sensible and power sharing way. When it comes to other issues of policy, well, uh, so far appears to be working similarly to what it was in the forty sixth Parliament where. For example, um, I took the running on on an integrity commission, and I had my crossbench colleagues back me up by seconding uh, seconding bills and motions. Uh, likewise, um, Zali Stegel, member for Warringah, really did the running on the Climate Act, and uh, and members of the crossbench backed her in seconding that bill and making speeches and supporting. I think it's going to work similarly with this new crossbench. We'll start to differentiate on particular areas. Uh, certainly for me, a uh, strong lens always on rural and regional Australia, which makes uh, the things that I may be prosecuting in the House, private members' bills or particular views on legislation, quite different to perhaps what, what the member for Goldstein or the member for North Sydney may be wishing to, to pursue. So I think, um, I think we'll see, though, uh, 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 that kind of cooperation happening like it did before, but we'll see differentiation too. But certainly what I see uh, in, in meeting with my crossbench colleagues is a real desire to share power, to be effective, respectful members of parliament and to get good work done. Just on the job summit, you mentioned that there'll be a crossbench representative. Has that person been chosen and, and what's the process? Is it out of a hat or expression of interest or a vote? Well, we're very we're very democratic. Um, so we've had uh, had a meeting. Um, we've looked at the sessions that are available. Um, one one a member of the crossbench uh, communicated directly with the treasurer, so as not to bombard the treasurer with treasurer with multiple phone calls to determine whether we can share the sessions rather than uh, one person being a delegate and uh, and one person then having to try to bring the multiple views from a from a very large crossbench. So uh, that's what we've done. We've looked at all the sessions, we've done the maths, we've uh, divided it up, we've asked uh, various members what their preferences for sessions are, when their availability is, and uh, we've split it up as best we can. And uh, thus far, everyone seems pretty satisfied with that. Just finally, many of you on the crossbench 
are critical as uh, members of the public of parliamentary behaviour. Do you really think we'll see better behaviour in Parliament or will it be the same old, same old? I must say I haven't noticed a great deal of difference so far, at least when we're talking about the, the whole House, not the crossbench. Mm. Look, um, Michelle, be what you want to see. And what we saw um, in the in this last sitting period, actually, is two members of the crossbench who did something that I've certainly never seen before and many people, other people commented they'd never seen before. They stood up and declared that they had a conflict of interest uh, in respect to a particular piece of legislation around superannuation. Uh, they made a statement to the House to this effect and said that they would be abstaining from the vote on the basis of that. Now, I thought that was actually rather wonderful and something that is just uh, standard in, in any other board that I've been involved with and many other people would have been involved with, but it was rather extraordinary in the House of Representatives. That's good behaviour, that's good governance, and that's something that I'd like to see more of. Uh, when it comes to uh, the bear pit that's question time, and that's the part of the parliament, let's face it, that most of the public think is actually parliament, look, it appears to be business as usual, uh, as much as I can see. We're, we're seeing the same old Dorothy Dixes. We're seeing the same old attack style from the opposition. We're seeing a lot of shouting, um, and uh, I can't see any change there, which is disappointing because question time could be a whole lot better. Uh, but I don't see much desire to change from either the government or the opposition. Helen Haynes, thank you very much for talking with us today and uh, sharing your observations and your insights. It's going to be a, a very interesting uh, next parliamentary sitting when it comes. That's all from today's politics podcast. Thank you to my producer, Ellen Duffy. We'll be back with uh, another interview soon, but until then, it's goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.